to the cardiology show at the ACC 2009 in Orlando. I have with me Dr. Cindy Grines, world-renowned coronary interventionalist of William Beaumont Hospital, Michigan, and Dr. Ann Curtis, electrophysiologist and chief of the USF Division of Cardiovascular Disease. Welcome. I think this is an historic moment. I think this is the first time we've had an all-female panel on the heart.org cardiology show, so thank you for joining me for that. We're gonna be discussing the PROTECT AF trial today. Um, I remember seeing one of the first in-man implants a few years ago back. I want to say that it was a German physician, and I was completely fascinated by that, but my enthusiasm is a bit tempered by a sharp learning curve and the fact that we aren't doing a very good job with anticoagulation anyway in America. So, um, Dr. Curtis, would you give us um, sort of a rundown of a brief synopsis of what the trial was actually about? PROTECT AF was a trial that was looking at the use of a left atrial appendage occlusion device uh, versus warfarin therapy for prevention of thromboembolic events in patients with nonvalvular atrial fibrillation. So uh, there were patients who were randomized in a two-to-one manner to the device versus uh, medical therapy. And uh, the major outcomes had to do with safety endpoints such as embolization of the device, uh, pericardial effusion, uh, hemorrhagic strokes versus, uh, and there were also efficacy endpoints, basically uh, thromboembolic events and cardiovascular death and uh, all-cause death. Uh, basically, uh, there were uh, some aspects of the outcomes that favored uh, the occlusion device and some favored warfarin, but basically it was a non-inferiority trial so that the, they were fairly equivalent. To me, one of the most important factors is that uh, the overwhelming majority of the patients who got the occlusion device were able to come off warfarin uh, successfully and be followed long term like that. And, Given that it's a non-inferiority study, it means that uh, from the outcome of this trial, those could be equivalent types of therapeutic options for patients who have atrial fibrillation who are candidates for warfarin therapy. So given that information, Cindy, do you think that we'll find any broad application anytime soon for this device? Well, not until it's FDA approved, but I'm actually thrilled with the results, to be honest. I mean, one of the most difficult parts of my practice is trying to talk patients into starting Coumadin in maintaining anticoagulation. Not only do they not like going in for the blood draws, but it's very difficult to adjust the therapy. They do not like being told that they can't eat green leafy vegetables when, in fact, it's supposed to be healthy for them. And I'm struck with the fact that this is a brand new technology, and yet they had a pretty good safety record, and they did show some positive benefits, uh, particularly with reduction in uh, intracranial bleeding. Absolutely. And given the steep learning curve from an interventionalist standpoint, who exactly in the cardiology culture will be performing this procedure? Will it be interventionalists like yourself or ablationists in the electrophysiology world? Who do you think will take the next step? Well, that's a very good question. I know uh, we did it in our um, angiographic laboratory, and the, the individuals who specialized in structural heart disease were the ones who deployed the device because it does require going up into the right heart across the intraatrial septum and deploying the device to occlude the left atrial appendage. And the reason that's done is because 90% of clots originate from the left atrial appendage. 
But in the EP lab, you cross the interatrial septum all the time as well. That's right. Uh, so actually, I could see this being a procedure done either by interventional cardiologist or electrophysiologist, and particularly since we do atrial fibrillation ablations, we're doing transeptal catheterizations, we're over there. The anatomy of the left atrial appendage, we're mapping that all the time. We've got CT scans in there, we see it. I think it actually would be a natural to do this at the time of an AFib ablation. I mean, that's farther down the road. We don't don't even have this device approved. But uh, where it would fit into the whole uh, issue of AFib ablation, I think, is an interesting question. One certainly will be addressed. You know, it struck me, though, that this showed non-inferiority to actually inferior therapy that we already have. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, at best in trial, we see that only 50% of patients remain fully anticoagulated at any given time. So this is a, a large indictment of the fact that we don't do a very good job with anticoagulation in this country. Um, don't you think that maybe we need to go back to the basics and try to make sure that our patients are anticoagulated first for the ones that are candidates for this device instead of just jumping directly to it? Or do you see that a lot of patients will say, I don't want to take Coumadin, I want the device. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's, um, I would hope that it's not the physician's fault as, as much as the patient preference. I mean, I try to start all the patients on uh, warfarin, but to be quite honest, they don't want to take it. Secondly, there's an extreme amount of cost requiring for the uh, monitoring of the anticoagulation that insurance or Medicare does not cover, so it's money out of, uh, of their pocket. And then furthermore, there's a lot, fair number of patients in the elderly age group in particular that are on uh, pacemakers, and it's quite difficult for me at least to determine what is the underlying rhythm. And so I personally think that I am missing a lot of patients with underlying atrial fibrillation that have a, a paced rhythm. And um, what if you developed atrial fibrillation five years from now and it's FDA approved? What are you going to do? Would you rather have a device or anticoagulation? Well, fortunately, even five years from now, I'd still be a CHADS 2 score of zero, <laughs> which would mean I could avoid the whole thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and for those who don't know, the CHADS score is a risk score that we use for deciding who needs to be on anticoagulation, congestive heart failure, hypertension, age over 75, diabetes, and a history of stroke or TIA in the past. Uh, and there's a scoring system. So you know anybody with a score of two or more should be on warfarin. Uh, and those with a score of one could either get warfarin or aspirin therapy. Um, but to go back to your other uh, issue about uh, the use of the, the medication, even if we do the best job we can, there are a lot of patients who wind up with INRs that are very high uh, or very low. Uh, you know, we, we, we constantly are checking these things and we, we run into problems. Uh, and the elderly who are most at need, of, at need for uh, the anticoagulation run the greatest risk with uh, bleeding complications. So all of that, I, th I think warfarin, the best job you can do is always going to be a problem. Now, how this would fit in with some other drugs that might be coming along very soon, direct thrombin inhibitors that are different in, the, in their mechanism and in the way we monitor them, uh, that would be an interesting uh, comparison to an occlusion device. But in terms of occlusion device versus warfarin right now, I think it's going to be, um, you know, provided you can put it in safely, I think. Uh, I, I would expect that if one eventually did a cost-effectiveness analysis looking at long-term outcomes, long-term medical costs associated with a one-time procedure to put a device in versus ongoing warfarin dose adjustments, uh, INR checks, complications and the hospitalizations associated with that, I, I think it, I, I, it would not surprise me to see the device come out superior in that respect. How will this impact the world of ablation? <clears throat> you know, if this becomes very popular, 
What's it going to do to our ablation numbers? Obviously, I guess they'll go down, but won't there still be a lot of patients that will need ablation for you know poorly tolerated atrial fibrillation, not just for the anticoagulation issue? Well, the, the real reason for doing an AFib ablation is intolerable symptoms. Uh, we don't. Uh, very few physicians are. Uh, really interested in doing that procedure right now for the purpose of getting someone off warfarin because we have no idea if that's safe. So even if you do an ablation and you think you've got a good outcome, we don't know if those patients won't have recurrences later on. It's been shown that many recurrences are asymptomatic. How much monitoring do you need to know to do in order to be sure that patients are okay? So we don't really do it for that reason. So it's still more for symptoms. So in that respect, I don't know how much of an impact there will be. Uh, uh, you know, they're really two independent issues to me. And then, uh, Cindy, we were just talking briefly about the clopidogrel-aspirin combination and how that's sort of been looked at. And even though it's not as good as Coumadin, it's probably better than nothing. You know, I think we all have a whole other option for patients that are very poorly able to tolerate Coumadin therapy and can't keep up with the monitoring and all that kind of stuff. Right. So for low CHAD scores, generally it's been recommended to treat those patients with aspirin. And interestingly enough, they recommend higher dose aspirin. Right. Right. I'm not sure that there's a lot of data for that. And then once the CHAD score gets above two, then of course, or two or above, it's supposed to be warfarin. But uh, just recently, a trial came out looking at patients who could not take warfarin for some reason, and they randomized them to clopidogrel combined with aspirin versus aspirin alone, and did show a greater therapeutic benefit from the clopidogrel. And you might think that's natural, that one might find that, but actually clopidogrel is a drug which is an antiplatelet, and generally these are thromboembolic clots come from the venous system, and they're not at all influenced or at least very little influenced by antiplatelet therapies. That's why antithrombin agents have been far more efficacious. Mm -hmm. They're big red clots, not the small little white platelet clots. So I think this meeting, it's been a very exciting meeting with regard to atrial fibrillation management, anticoagulation devices coming down the pike, combinations coming down the pike. And I think it's really gonna impact what we do you know, with our patients in the next five to 10 years. So. I appreciate your being with me today. It's been a great all-women panel. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for join us, joining us on theheart.org.